Please join me in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. People of God, I can't even begin to tell you how earnestly I've wanted not to preach this sermon. In my own defense, this topic is the single most requested sermon topic of my ministry here. Some five or six times a year, I'm asked by members of the congregation to give a sermon on tithing. And I think this is probably the first time I've actually given in in the seven years I've been at Trinity. It always seems the timing is bad. I didn't intentionally plan this sermon on our annual meeting day when we discussed budget. I didn't discuss the pa- I didn't think about the painful reality of discussing finances just before tax time and just after Christmas. By the way, Garrison Keeler notes that while the financial aspect of Christmas is usually painful to most of us, it's the only thing that politicians from both sides can agree on. They like Christmas. Democrats love Christmas because it involves deficit spending. Republicans love it because it involves cutting down trees. It was Garrison Keillor, not me. <laughs> now we're back to the reality of a new year and the budget battles return. Actually, it doesn't matter what time of year, there really is no good time to talk about money. And you already know I hate preaching about it. But let me explain to you the source of my hesitance. I began training for ministry in the flurry of the televangelist scandals of the 1980s. Seeing these famous preachers exposed and ridiculed imprinted on the popular mindset the notion that the church is all about money. It's all about money, power, and sex. And that was the consensus view of my unbelieving friends and family. Pastors are greedy. They're in it for the money. Family members used to wonder out loud when I was going to get my own TV ministry, along with the big hair and the wife who cried a lot, so much so that I almost was ashamed to admit that I was training for ministry, for fear that people would mentally place me down the scale of being somewhere, somewhere near the exotic dancer and the crack dealer. You probably heard the story about the two men who survived a shipwreck and found themselves stranded on a deserted island. One man was worried endlessly that they would never be rescued. The other simply sunned himself on the beach as if there was nothing to worry about. The first man said to the second, how is it that you're not worried that we're going to be stranded here forever? The second man replied, I make $100,000 a week. I tithe every Sunday. Trust me, my pastor will find me. (laughs) 
Like it or not, the church has a lot of work to do to convince the world around us that we're not motivated by greed or materialism. Even within the church, Christians demonstrate very little knowledge about the financial realities of keeping a ministry alive. Some people assume that the offering plate is collected and carried across the street to my house. Well, that's not true. The first church I pastored, I'm being serious about this, the first church I pastored, I earned $14,000 a year. And I vividly recall two instances reminding me always of the awkwardness of the topic of giving in the church. I remember one woman standing at the door of the church after the service was over, saying within earshot of everyone, I'm still trying to figure out what it is you do for, for all the money we give you. In another instance, a member of my family had given me a $50 gift certificate for Myers, so I decided to splurge and purchase my first television, a 12-inch black-and-white $35 model. In the checkout line, I happened to run into another person from the church. When he saw the television in my cart, he snorted, so that's what you do with all our money. Needless to say, the next church council meeting, I, I received a lecture for extravagant living. So I always feel uncomfortable talking about money in the church, and I feel that sometimes talk about giving in the church perpetuates a lot of ugly misconceptions by both Christians and non-Christians alike. It's a hard topic to talk about, especially when it's your means of income. Because in spite of the fact that the deacons and elders at Trinity never scold us about giving, in spite of the fact that this is the first sermon I've ever remember preaching here about giving, still inevitably, inevitably, somebody will leave this service saying, you see, all they ever talk about is money. Honestly, I would rather have my spleen removed with a butter knife <laughs> than preach this sermon. So let's be clear about this. This is your idea. <laughs> you asked the question again and again. And so here it is. Is a, Christian, is a Christian supposed to tithe? Now, unlike most of these sermons where I'm answering your questions, I'm not going to make you wait to the end of the sermon to find out. No. The Christian is under no obligation to tithe. You hear that sound? That's the deacon board weeping. <laughs> the tithe is an Old Testament principle that is never repeated as a New Testament mandate. To be specific, the tithe was a temple tax. It was required of every Jewish family in order to support the ongoing ministry of the temple. And since the physical temple is no longer the center of our worship, the practice of tithing is no longer mandatory. For Christians, the requirement of tithing is obsolete. The book of 2 Corinthians, however, gives us insight into the Christian practice of giving. In Paul's perspective, it's the responsibility of the church community to financially support the ministry, the minister, and to provide help for the poor and needy. What I find interesting about this passage is that Paul does not command tithing. Now, Paul is not the sort 
who would pass up an opportunity to command anything. But instead, he spends two whole chapters in 2 Corinthians advising rather than commanding. The easiest thing in the world for Paul would have been to repeat the Old Testament mandate to tithe. But Paul simply says this, each one of you should give what you have decided in your own heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, I've always worked with the naive assumption that Christians don't need to be guilted into giving, much less placed under some illusory divine mandate to tithe. I've always assumed that if people are discovering the grace of God in their lives through the life and ministry of the church, that they will, be with, they will give without reluctance or compulsion, but out of joy and thankfulness to God. I mentioned this to another pastor, and he violently disagreed. He warned me that I'd be making a tactical error if I disavowed people of the notion that tithing is a mandate from God. He said, if you eliminate guilt, every motivation to give will disappear. I pray to God that that's not true. The Apostle Paul thinks otherwise. He argues in 2 Corinthians that the motivation for giving is not guilt, not law, but grace. He writes in chapter 8, I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. People who are striving to become more Christ-like, people who have received the grace of God in their lives, are people who are compelled by that grace to generously share what God has given them. Jesus emptied himself in order to share the Father's riches with us. This becomes the Christian motivation to give. In last week's sermon, I pointed out that the sign of true grace in our lives is that grace can never be hoarded. It can never be kept to ourselves. And Paul suggests here in 2 Corinthians that if we have received the grace of God, if God's blessing has come into our lives, then we will naturally want to share it with other people. What does it mean then when Christians are less than generous, when we give motivated by guilt or out of a sense of legalistic obligation? Well, in Paul's framework, this means that we need another lesson in grace. And we all do, of course. Grace is surrounded in the biblical notion that everything we have is not ours. God created the world and all its resources. God created us and gave us certain abilities. Every breath we take, every movement of muscle, every synapse that fires in our brains, these are all gifts from God. Greed, greed is grounded in the idolatry of possession. It works with the assumption that all these things belong to me, and I can do with them as I please. But grace works with the assumption that everything belongs to God, and some things God has put under our 
temporary care. As Christians, above all, we should be aware of how temporary it really is. This past week, the news reported the 18th birthday of Athena Onassis, the granddaughter of oil tycoon Aristotle Onassis. On her 18th birthday, Athena inherited multiple billions of dollars. And it reminded me of the death of her grandfather, Aristotle. After he died, there was much speculation in the press about how much he was actually worth. One reporter asked an associate the impertinent question, how much did Onassis leave? The reply was sobering. He left everything. Our values should be shaped by the knowledge that one day we will leave everything, that this age will pass away, and in the next age, the money in our bank accounts and the investments we have will count far less than what we did with what God has entrusted to us. We are not the owners of the divine bank account. We're the managers of it. Part of the problem with how we approach the question of tithing, is that it gives us, the, it gives us permission to assume that 10% of our net income belongs to God. And of course, the remaining 90% is ours to do with as we wish. We assume that once we've written the check and dropped it in the plate, we've finished our obligation to God. But the biblical view is more challenging. It's radically different. In the biblical view, nothing you have is really yours. Everything belongs to God. The offering that we take up each week is really just a symbol of that. You do understand that God doesn't need our money. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the scriptures say, to give a portion of our income each week is an act of worship. It's a symbol that everything we own, the whole of our lives, belong to God. When we give to the offering on Sunday morning, it ought to be an act of worship. We ought to be thinking about what God wants us to do with the rest of our possessions, or rather his possessions. Just as when we share the Lord's Supper, we ought not to be simply thinking about ourselves, but about how God, who has lavished himself upon us in this meal, in the sacrifice of his son, how can we share grace and hospitality with others? Our worship should always point us outward to our responsibility in the world. And of course, money is just the tip of the iceberg. Because more than your money, the Christian community needs your hands, your time, your prayers, and your gifts. The tithe might be a good starting point for teaching the principle of stewardship, but it's only a starting point. Tithing can be a good principle and a good discipline for Christian people so long as we don't get legalistic about it, so long as we don't forget the grace in the story. And there are a couple of myths about tithing that I would like to quickly dispense with. First, the idea that tithing is a spiritual mandate is challenged by today's scripture. I've heard preachers threaten people about giving to the degree 
that, that, that people give, about giving to the degree that people have sacrificed paying for their, their own bills and properly feeding their families because of the threat that God would be angry. There are times in life where I want to suggest to you where it might be financially impossible for you to give as you would like. And that's okay. Feeding your children, keeping your heat on, is as much an act of spiritual faithfulness as tithing could be. And if you're unable to give for a time, or to give as you would like, find another way to give. Devote a few hours a week as a volunteer to help the church or the community. Offer more time in prayer on behalf of your neighbor. God loves a cheerful giver, but he doesn't specify precisely what you should give at any particular time of life. I know people who at certain times of life were unable to give as they would like, but when things finally turned around, when things became financially stable, they never forgot that time, and they became generous and sacrificial givers. There's a second myth that I want to challenge, and that's the popular notion that tithing works like a kind of divine stock market. Certain preachers will promise you that if you give a percentage to God, then you're guaranteed a certain financial return. They might even give numbers. But I suggest to you that if we give only because we think we're going to get more back, then our motivation for tithing is no better than the person who spends his paycheck at the casino. God promises to bless us, yes, but it may very well be that the blessing for giving is found in the grace of giving itself. We give because we have been given to. We share because grace is by its very nature something that has to be shared. Paul writes, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now the God who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You see, this is about righteousness, not about financial gain. You will be made rich, Paul says, in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. The blessing of giving is that we become better givers, more generous, more thankful to God, and more full of God's grace, a grace that needs to be shared. The last myth I want to dismantle although there are many and time prohibits discussing them all, is the lie we tell ourselves. When I make more, I'll give more. It's kind of the Reaganomics view of tithing. In some cases it may be so, but statistics demonstrate that rarely it is. Christianity Today noted a few years ago, the weakest givers in the church are those who give between, who earn between 40,000 and 100,000 a year. The biggest givers are those who earn less than 20,000 
and more than 100,000. And while those over 100,000 give more, they do so at a decreasing percentage of their income. In the end, it seems statistically at least that the less we have, the more inclined we are to share. Perhaps we never forget what it's like to be poor, and that creates a generosity within us. The principle of the widow's might. Whatever your income, you need to remember that you have much that can be shared. God has lavished his love upon you. And as a good custodian of that gift, we need to become creative in finding ways to share the gift of God's love with other people. At Trinity Church, we're not going to pester you about giving. giving. We think you're intelligent enough to look at the budget you voted in, to consider what is necessary to keep the ministry alive. But more important than those numbers, we want to remind you that God wants you. He wants all of you. This offering is a symbolic act of worship, reminding us of the fact week after week that everything we have and everything we are belongs to God. And all those things should be used to bring glory to God. Our church is able, with our budget, to support several missionaries, ministries, and social programs. We are able to participate in even more through our shared ministry with the Covenant Church in the world. But supporting these ministries can't, supporting these ministries financially can't replace our calling to be involved in ministry ourselves. Our hope for you is that you will grow in grace so that you can become committed to the life of God's church and the work of God in the world. We want you to consider offering time, prayer, and all forms of service to the kingdom of God. And above all, we want you not only to share God, not only to receive God's grace, but to share it. We'll let the Apostle Paul have the final word. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but it is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing surpassing grace God has given to you. Thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.